Cosmic Tragedy by Thomas S. Gardner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dale Grothman. Cosmic Tragedy by Thomas S. Gardner. The big man with the iron-gray hair stared morosely at the quartz window and across the roofs of Greater New York. Far down the canyon streets a few motor-cars still ran, and over the swinging aerial bridges scattered pedestrians carefully wended their way. Their grotesque figures with the heavy metal helmets that reminded the watching man of the half-mythical sea-creatures from the past, or divers that used to explore wrecks, were far different from the jostling crowds that had crowded the ways only a few short days ago. But that was before the plague, the plague of the whispering death. John Cortland, United Utilities Power Magnet, sighed as he turned from the quiet streets below. Somberly, he regarded a tiny light beam that came from the mirror of the galvanometer that trembled and danced continually. He mused over the events of the past few days and wondered at their meaning. Like a caged tiger, he paced the metal-lined room, waiting for the word that would spell success or disaster. Five days before it had first appeared, a whispering, a singing, a vibrating had manifest itself. It was not local, but appeared simultaneously all over the earth. This whispering, as of elfish voices, was not annoying at first but it changed and alternated from a shrill whine back to the eerie murmuring that was first noticed. Young Cavendish, at the Black Laboratories, had first tracked down the cause of the strange sounds. As to its ultimate origin, that was still veiled in mystery. At the end of the first day people had become nervous. At the end of the second, many were on the point of breaking and then mankind began to go insane. It was too much for their nervous system, and the vibration seemed to affect the inner ear. Suddenly, a well-ordered planet became a center of bedlam and chaos. Order could not be restored because there was no one to handle affairs. If Dr. Hankins had not discovered that iron would shield the wearer from the vibrations, mankind would have been doomed. As it was, only a few of the Earth's heavy population had been able to get the protecting helmets, and some had lived in metal-lined rooms. This discovery of the shielding effect of iron led to the discovery that an electromagnetic radiation between infrared and shortwave radio was acting on the ozone molecules to set them into vibration. To cap it all, the ionizing heaviside layer that protected the earth from the ultraviolet rays of the sun was decomposing also. Thus, to the plague of the whispering death was added the threat of sunburn, a horrible burn that killed the skin and ultimately the patient. Savagely, John Cortland kicked at his chair as he paced across the room. There was one slender hope, a thin thread that might save them at last. Europe was prostrated, Asia in turmoil, and America in chaos. All depended on the theory 
that the origin of the destructive vibration that had set their ozone molecules into their dance of death had intelligence back of it. The source of the radiation could not be found at this time, but that was not needed. If they could use the incoming radiation field as a carrier and heterodyne on it a superimposed vibration, perhaps the source could be destroyed. Japan had furnished the formula for the opposing field, and United Utilities Power the energy. All the great power stations on the planet had been connected up into a unit. All the tremendous kilowatts of energy had been flowing for hours into those great reservoirs of bound energy, the artificial space field invented by Minsky of Stalingrad, and the great glass globes at Schenectady had taken this power and had built up a voltage unthinkable. The earth was going to hurl the thunderbolts of Jove. For hours now he had restlessly awaited the signal to release this energy in answer to the whispering death. For hours the stunned planet had awaited the moment of decision when he would release all this pent-up energy that Niagara, Victoria, and countless other waterfalls, and many great steam power plants that had been harnessed for man's use. The carefully pre-calculated voltage would hurl an electron stream at a target. The desired wavelength would be emitted by the target, and would automatically heterodyne itself on the invading field. This frightful stream of energy would blast its generators into atoms. But it must suffice. It was Earth's dying stroke. A bell tinkled, and eagerly John Cortland rushed to answer. A quiet voice said, We are ready. The potential has reached maximum. The zero hour had arrived. Nervously, John Cortland looked around the room at the familiar articles, and once out the window at the sunlight, and then back in. He threw the switch. Four, the great leader of the once powerful Murians, gazed through the matter shield across space to the planet hanging in the heavens, a great green disk outlined in pearly light with green continents and bluish-green seas pointed clearly to its nearness. The artificial satellite that housed the observatory was circling this planet with incredible velocity. This was just what they had been looking for, an inhabitable planet with intelligent beings on it that could aid them in their problem. Long ages ago they had left their planet just before their sun had become a nova and had exploded. Only a few of their peoples had been saved, and at the thought the great goggly eyes filmed in sorrow. The great journey in space had tried them all. Generations had been born, and some had died. By necessity they had kept their population down until they could come to a system which might support them. They not only needed an inhabitable planet, but an intelligent people on this planet, so they could rebuild their civilization quickly. They were friendly, and had no wish to harm the dwellers on this planet. He did not entirely agree with the Council that they should get into communication with these people before landing. Four thought that they were wasting time to encircle this beautiful world while attempting to communicate with them. Their atmosphere analysts had shown them small quantities of ozone. 
and they were bombarding the ozone with a controlled radiation. This caused them to act as receivers and converters so that intelligent communication could be set up. It was just like a radio without a receiving set. Ozone molecules did it all just before decomposing. To one side he could see the huge transformers and generators of the tiny moonlet's driving plant and ray generators. The actual projector hung like a tiny mushroom some distance from the generating plant. The inclined buildings, due to the high radius of curvature of the moonlet, looked as though they were falling down all the time. Tiny figures of Murians ceaselessly worked about the great machines that had carried them for ages. For days now they had been keeping up the barrage, hoping to get a response. Their electro-telescopes had shown them that this planet housed a people as intelligent as their own. Their great cities, ships, and power stations made them long to be with the planet's peoples. Together they could do wonders, and here they were waiting in space. Why this waste of time? Of course the Council was right in believing that the sudden appearance of unfamiliar beings might start an interplanetary war, and they could not fight a war. Their resources were practically exhausted, their peoples few, and they had no desire to cause trouble. They only wanted peace, and a place to live. He shrugged his scaly shoulders and cocked his vertical eyes at the meters covering the walls. No response to their messages yet. What could be the matter? Of course the planet had a denser atmosphere than that which they were accustomed to, but no matter. They could adjust themselves to it. Strange about the messages, though. They had been exactly within the audible range of the Murians and their antenna had had no difficulty in reading them. Of course the planet's men would receive them just the same. Still the prediction of Tom Tack that the denser atmosphere would increase the pitch of the ozone molecules had to be considered. However, this increased pitch should not harm the inhabitants. Their antenna received them very well, Tess demonstrated. They had not tested them for the effect on the inner ear structure, for they had never possessed them. Their sound transmission had been direct. If they did not respond within a few more revolutions about the planet, they would be compelled to go down into the atmosphere. Wonder what that unusual activity about the power plants and the great crystal globes on the one major continent meant anyway. Perhaps they were preparing to answer their calls. But why so much power as they seemed to be accumulating? What a peculiar field! That was unknown to them. Why these people would pump more power into one great field than the Murians had developed for ages? Great peoples, these inhabitants of the third planet. Well, he would take one more glance at the great crystal globes before turning over his place to his aid. There it was now. The crystal globes were surrounded in crimson flame. They disappeared in blinding incandescence, and horrors, simultaneously their projector had been surrounded by a halo of radiation that arced across to the generators. These exploded showering molten metal on the frightened Murians. 
four did not see the full charge arrive blasting the moonlit into incandescence and destroying the last of the myriads the great flame came into being in space between earth and moon the earthlings were greatly mystified at it but the whispering death had ceased they were satisfied the end of cosmic tragedy by thomas s gardner